Welcome in and welcome aboard another episode of a show to be named later. Thanks so much for stopping by, for tuning in and making us a part of your day. Whether you found us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Radio.com, wherever it is that you get your podcast. Maybe you follow me on Twitter at SethGoldberg17 or on Facebook, Seth Goldberg Sports. Uh, it's, a, it's a Monday Okay, it's a Sunday night, really late on a Sunday night, as uh, we've just watched parts 7 and 8 of The Last Dance, night 4 of 5 of The Last Dance, and uh, I think, uh, you know, I'm sitting here with my brother Howard, he's, he's sitting uh, right next to me as we do this, maybe that's why I rushed through the, the intro a little bit more, but um, I think 7 might have been the best one so far. I think the first hour tonight was the most interesting, most compelling episode they've done. Seven was it was loaded. It was a great episode. Yeah, and so and I, I just want to just from the start that press conference with Jerry Krause. He said, "There's no backstabbing." Yep. He's he's absolutely right. He stabbed him right in the face. <laughs> it was in plain sight. So he's right. Yeah, he's not wrong. And you know, I've heard an interview with with Sam Smith. Uh, recently, that was done a couple of weeks ago, where he basically said, "All right, some of that's not exactly the the full truth." Like Phil had kind of told him he didn't really want to coach anymore, so you know, take take whatever with a grain of salt. But yes, you're right. I mean, it, it the idea that they stabbed everybody in the back by saying, "Hey, this is the last year we're all together," is probably not uh, exactly accurate. They were very upfront with it, but also, um, I, I think that certain parties were kind of okay with it. I think that if you you read between the lines, Scottie Pippen was kind of cool with it. Also, you know, Pippen was all right with, with breaking things up. Uh, the only one who really didn't seem okay with it was Michael, and that makes sense. Uh, but that seventh episode, I, I thought, first off, I, the thing that strikes me and the thing that has struck me the last couple of weeks as it's become a, a larger talking point. And, you know, I heard a, a podcast that Terry Francona did with Buster Olney, uh, you know, just last week, but... The, the idea of Michael Jordan being a failure in the minor leagues, a failure as a baseball player, is so far off base. I mean, so far off base. Uh, he, he went and put up, like, respectable numbers after not having played baseball for 14 years. He, he, he held his own. You know, he wasn't great. He wasn't an all-star in his league. He wasn't, you know, a top performer on his team. But he held his own and was a respectable player, given all the circumstances around it. Absolutely right. And yes, I remember seeing an article on ESPN several months ago about the same thing of, hold on, Michael Jordan's baseball career isn't as bad as you thought. Exactly. And it had a lot of those same quotes where Jerry Reinsdorf said, give him 1,500 at-bats, I think he makes it to the majors. And I think Francona said it well. It was a miracle that he hit 202. And right. drove in 50 runs, which is nothing to laugh at. Like, there were a lot of good prospects on that team, like t- Terry said, that didn't drive in 50 runs. He also stole 30 bases that year. Like, right. He, he, when was, you, when he was a respectable minor league baseball When player. you're grading him as a prospect, so to speak, his speed tool was probably in, like, the 70 range. No? Right, on the, the 2080 scale. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, he he had tools to make him a baseball player. He hadn't done it in a while, and and the thing that they really focus on, uh, because 
ultimately he would have to kind of go back on it. He had to transform his body. He had to work out in different ways. And, you know, I thought that that was a really interesting thing to watch, not only at the beginning, but then at the in the later part of the episode where they're talking about him working his way back, or I think it was even the next one, where they're talking about him working his way back, where where he, he was not in the right kind of shape. Like, hey, he's Michael Jordan. He's still in awesome shape. But he's not in the right kind of shape to go play basketball, to go play series, to go get beaten up by guys. And you could see Horace Grant and Shaq and Nick Anderson taking advantage of that in the 95 playoffs. And, and they're able to knock out a, a vulnerable, not quite whole Michael Jordan. And you really saw it in that 95 season where the 94-95 season where you saw the inconsistency in the games where... Michael Jordan as number 45 had those games where he was the brilliant Michael Jordan of old, but there were also the games where he didn't look like he had his legs under him. He might shoot 7 for 28 one game, but he might put up 55 the next. Right, and going back to that, now that 55, that his fifth game back at Madison Square Garden, that was kind of him putting the NBA on notice. Hey, maybe I'm not Michael Jordan of 92-93 yet, but I'm coming, and I will be here soon. Yeah, and he was, look, he was never the same Michael Jordan because he was three years older. He was a couple years older, and, and he just wasn't the same physically, but he still turned into, you know, a smart, smart savvy player and somebody who had enough, more than enough athleticism to get by. It's hard the, to argue he wasn't the best player in the league again. Sure, sure. No, he, he certainly there, was. He had by, a lot more competition. It was but, much more of a conversation. By the time the 95-96 season started, he was the best player in the league again. Right. Uh, back to the baseball thing for one moment, though. And I, I think that ultimately this is the most important thing. Aside from the fact that he uh, he never got off Bulls payroll. Aside from the fact that he just kind of snuck in and, and went and beat B.J. Armstrong one-on-one. Uh, after not playing basketball competitively in a long time. The most important thing, and this is I think that this is evident in the film, even though they, they just kind of talk about the, the baseball stuff in like a half hour and kind of get it in and out. Um, you know, this is evident in stories that you might read on ESPN.com or the podcast that I listen to with Terry Francona talking about this. Um, the baseball stuff, right? The baseball phase of Michael Jordan's career really seemed to get him interested in sports again. Like, it it seemed to allow him to have fun. I think that in the film they used the phrase, uh, he was just one of the guys. It was who he was hanging out with. You saw him playing ping pong in the locker room and, and hanging out in the locker room, in the clubhouse and watching a, ba- a, a Bulls game. You know, he was just one of the guys. He was having fun. He was enjoying himself again. And, yeah, he still had that crazy competitive edge, and he would punch Steve Kerr in the face. Uh, But he kind of, like, enjoyed playing the sport again, which he clearly hadn't at the end of the 93 season. Right. He found his love again. And you saw that as he was watching his old team, his teammates, playing from the baseball clubhouse. Right. And he was like, I'm not playing, but... I still love the game. I still like to watch. And that's when you're like, wow, he he does miss it. Mm-hmm. He's happy playing baseball, but he loves basketball. Right. And I think it kind of showed him that his life wasn't necessarily complete without basketball in it. Well, and I- that 
he even left the door open when That's he retired. That's what I was going to say. He I, said, right now, uh, this is what I want. This is what I want now, but... That doesn't mean I can't come back in the future, exactly. but this, I'm at peace with this. Right, and and I think that that's an important thing to note, and it's it's something that, you know, maybe looking back, you, you think of it differently, but, like, yeah, okay, he left the door open from the minute he retired to come back and play basketball again. It shouldn't be surprising that at that age, he decided to come back and play basketball again. Especially he was still those- young. Especially in those circumstances with the strike. Right. And and it all kind of mixed together, and especially the circumstances surrounding his retirement, which is something that I wanted to get to. And uh, for, for anybody listening saying, well, how did they not mention that first? Uh, I'd rather start with the baseball than the grizzly murder. Yeah. I'd rather start with the baseball than the murder. This is in the uh, CSI episode, all right? Yeah, this so, doesn't start out so with the murder. The, so the murder of, of his father is obviously playing such a huge role in uh in his retirement and and the author of the book uh who said oh well he told me a year prior okay fine i i get it like sure um you know i i get where you're coming from you're not wrong where he said oh well i'm gonna go play baseball i'm just not doing it now because you know this whole olympics thing and like i'd, I'd like to win three in a row because those guys haven't okay fine okay that's all well and good uh, however, I think that the fact that his father was killed that summer made the decision all the more easier to go ahead and make that move then. You know, like it it, it gave him the closure on his basketball career. He even said, okay, my dad saw my last basketball game and my dad and I talked about going and playing baseball all this time. So let's go do it. Not even that. The last conversation he had with his father was them debating whether he should go play baseball. Right. That's that's, that's all, all the there is. You need. Right. Right. And so I think that 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 obviously played um a huge role in the decision to retire, a huge role in the decision to go play for the White Sox and and to go into uh you know that that kind of field rather than continue to play basketball now with that being said that doesn't mean that that he wasn't thinking of his dad when he went back to playing basketball it just means that the circumstances came together like you mentioned oh the baseball players going on strike doesn't help michael jordan you know why because michael jordan was a uh, a big piece of the basketball players union. So how is he all of a sudden going to go out against the baseball players union? You just, you couldn't do it. So he couldn't play as a replacement in baseball and he still had that competitive drive, that spirit. He fell back in love with sports and he wanted to go back to basketball. Even, even if the union wasn't part of the picture, knowing exactly who Michael Jordan was, the competitive nature he wasn't going to let himself get to the major leagues as a replacement player. He was going to get there by earning his way there. He wasn't going to get there because the regular major leaguers weren't playing. You know what I mean? No, you're not wrong. I mean, I think that... I, I do wonder I do wonder what would have happened had he not had such an active role in the Players Association in the NBA. I do wonder if he would have been more comfortable playing as a replacement player had he not had such a large role in that capacity. But the fact of the matter is, he did. 
you know, he had a huge role uh, in the in the NBA Players Association. And how do you go against one players association when you're such a big part of another? And I think that, that obviously played a huge role in him coming back and, you know, in, in him wanting to be back on the court. Um, you know, and, and then, you know, once you once you talk about him getting back on the court, uh, you can see kind of the stages of how things started to come together, right? He's he's not quite himself. He's showing flashes. Okay, he's clearly a different player than he was before. All right, now they lose to the bull. The now they lose to the Magic. Well, there's different things about losing to the Magic. Obviously, the forty-five isn't twenty-three. The next game, he comes out wearing number twenty-three. Horace Grant. He was showing in the documentary saying, Nick, why'd you do that? You know? He's like, you you, you poked the bear. You woke well, a it, sleeping giant. And it did happen in the series before also with BJ Armstrong. And and you could kind of see... Um, you can see this, this edge that... Um, I'm not saying he didn't need in the first three-peat. But it didn't need to be as much of a focus because he was so athletically um, superior superior to everybody else. You know, yeah, obviously you need that edge, but you don't need it to the same extent when you could just dunk over Patrick Ewing. You know, you can you can kind of get by on your athleticism and some of that edge. But you know what? When B.J. Armstrong hits a shot to put them up by five and he yells in the direction of your bench, you know what? You're going to go torch B.J. Armstrong the next time. And, yeah, I know they had the little Bradford Smith story, which was amazing. And that took place in 1993, and I get it. And, but, and, and then it didn't take place. <laughs> well, yeah, but here's the thing. That was in uh, a regular season game, right? That was in January or February of 1993. And sometimes you need that garbage to get through the drudge of a season. You don't need that to get through a playoff series necessarily. Except now in 1995, MJ was taking that stuff to get through a playoff series. He was taking that against BJ Armstrong. He was annoyed at Nick Anderson. He was mad at the Magic for that entire offseason, and he came back and swept them the next year. And I said it to you about a minute and a half before it came out of Horace's mouth. Horace Grant was the only player on the Magic that year that knew they had absolutely no chance at beating the Bulls right. that second year. Because he knew Michael well enough to know last year is going to bury us. And it did. It did, and you know, it was kind of fun to watch as it it played itself out because you could see this kind of motivational factor. You saw it with George Carl in the '96 Finals, uh, you know, where where it wasn't, uh, you know, he felt slighted because he didn't come say hi to him in a restaurant or, or whatever it might have been. And you they know, had known each other too. It wasn't like, oh, right. you're just Michael. We're playing against you. It's a courtesy thing. Like they they knew each other. Right. So you you could kind of see how it. It was playing itself out, and obviously by '98 there was some of that too, where it was ah, is he the same player, you know, and and talking about his retirement, and he was just tired of it. So you could see how it's all building forward. You could see how it's all building to this point where they get to, you know, May uh, to to April, May, June of 1990, 1998, and 
all that's left, really, the only thing left to do is to go win a title. There's nothing else to play for. There's no future at stake for for Michael or Phil, and and Scotty's going to get paid no matter what happens. The only thing left to do is go win a title again. Right, which shows kind of the naive nature of Reggie Miller when he says the stars are aligning, I'm going to retire Michael Jordan. Yeah. I feel like at that point it should be readily apparent to everybody in the game of basketball that nobody except for Michael Jordan is going to (laughs) retire Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean, look, and and it became obvious. The only times that you saw him at a down after he won the first championship in 91. And, you know, it's it's so weird because you, you compare it to the teams that came before him. And, and he talks about, you know, well, Magic and Larry didn't win three in a row. And, you know, you, you talk about the, the bad boy Pistons who you've seen earlier in the movie, in the film. Um, you know, Detroit beat Boston and then Chicago beat Detroit to get to, get to where they got, right? And Chicago beat L.A. to get to where they got. Nobody ever beat Michael Jordan. Like, yeah, okay, the Magic beat Michael Jordan. Did they? Like, come on. Come on, guys. He, he was playing basketball for like two months before before that series. Like, did it really? Okay, fine. You beat Michael Jordan. Fine. And then he comes back as a wizard and he's not the same. Yeah, he was 40. Like, okay, it makes sense. He hadn't played basketball in a couple of years and he was 40. Like, he shouldn't be winning those games and, and those series and getting to the finals in that stage in his career. So he's the one player in the history of the sport, really, that, that's got this strange situation where you just never saw him lose. And, you know, it's it's just kind of part of the mythology. Yeah, absolutely. Like, to your point about what Reggie said, like, nobody was going to retire. I mean, he just never loses. That's right. The last thing that I, I do want to get to... Um, I thought it was really interesting, the end of the seventh episode. The end of the seventh episode, where he he's breaking down, and he says, the last thing that you hear, the last thing you see, is him kind of bending forward, leaning forward in his chair, scratching his eye, like as if he, he's feeling tears coming on, and he says, break. And... It's at the end of of an emotional episode, I'd imagine, for him to go back and watch. You're talking about him retiring. You're talking about him playing baseball. You're talking about um, his His father's death. You're talking about, you know, everything that goes into the relationship with his dad, the the crazy investigation and and everything that happened. Um, But that's not what got him emotional. What got him emotional was talking about pushing his teammates. And I, I thought that that was so interesting, especially as you push it towards episode eight and you get the story about him punching Steve Kerr in the face. Like, it's such an interesting dynamic that what got him emotional was, I need more out of these guys. I need to push these guys because, yeah, like, sure, may, maybe we can be good. Maybe we can get to the playoffs. Maybe we can, you know, beat the sorry-ass New Jersey Nets. But we're not going to beat the Pacers, and we're not going to beat the Knicks, and we're not going to beat the, you know, whoever's coming out of the West if they're not strong, if they're not, you know, intensified by what I'm doing. Yeah, it really showed how personal of a mission he made it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And that, yeah, I can be great. But this team can't be great unless everybody's on board. One person isn't going to make the team. I know that 
I can make the team better, but I can't make the team a champion alone. The other the other thing along these lines that I thought was really interesting, and Michael said it exactly, but the the fact that he like actually said it, I thought was fascinating, along with a lot of things that he said in this film. Uh, but the idea that he actually said out loud the part about well, Steve Kerr's coming in here, and Tony Kukoc, and Luke Longley, and and Jed Buckler, and and these guys are all coming in here, acting as if they won three championships with the Chicago Bulls, and they're on this great team, and they've done so many great things. What the hell have they done, right? They haven't done essentially, is what he says. And I think that it's so interesting that he actually like said it, you know, because. You don't normally get that. You don't normally get the player to say, oh, yeah, uh, these guys are acting as if they've won stuff without winning stuff. We've got to put them in in their place. Um, And you get it even less when that guy is on their team. Like, this is not... This is not Michael looking at the 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 new the Orlando Magic and being like, "Look at that Shaquille O'Neal walking around as if he's got four titles. Look at that jerk." No, he's talking about his teammates. That's right. And guys that he grew to respect and grew to really like. And it's kind of interesting I saying that he grew to respect Kerr because he punched him in the face. Right. It's it's like, as Kerr said, with Michael, you needed that moment. You needed to show him that you weren't going to back down. And you kind of saw it, like, when he was watching the footage of what Gary Payton was saying. Yes. It. He said, I never had a problem with him. Like, I took that two ways. One, I didn't have a problem with him on the court. But I also didn't have a problem with him in general. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I didn't kind care of much what he was doing. Right? Like, yeah, he had like my props. Like, he was a good player, but like, I didn't have a problem with him. He didn't. He didn't trouble me. And it kind of shows like exactly what he was as a competitor. Like, you be up front. You be you, and give it what you got, and you're good with Michael. Yeah, you know, and it, it's just. It was just so fascinating to watch as that played itself out. Um, and let's end on this note. It's a light note about this this whole film because you mentioned it. The clip of him watching and listening to what Gary Payton said about him. Um, my favorite part of this documentary, and this is going to sound hilarious, my favorite part of this documentary might be when the director Jordan Air gives him a clip to watch and you just see the reaction of Michael Jordan to to whatever crap these other people are saying like the Isaiah Thomas clip earlier um and now this one it's just awesome to see his reaction to this and that's the way I don't know if you saw you caught this that's the way Jason Air is uh promoting this on Twitter he he sent out a screen grab of Michael with his head shot back in laughter and you're like oh I want to see what that was about yeah he it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant because who in their right mind is going to look at that and not say what's he looking at of course as if you're not going to watch this already like that just I had to know I had to know I saw it earlier today that 
that's just throwing kerosene on a fire. Yeah, I saw it's... it earlier today. I saw it earlier today, and I was like, oh my god, what is this about? I was like, <laughs> I need to know what part of the film this is. And then so as soon as Gary Payton says what he says, and you cut to the shot of of MJ sitting there laughing the like a hyena, I was sitting there with a screen in front of him. I'm like, oh, that's what this is, and I was so excited. All right, so that a good uh, that's a good place to to wrap it. Are you disappointed? There's only one more night of this. A little bit, but I'm really excited because nobody knows what's coming as of now. Or, yeah, I mean, you know how the story ends, but you don't know how they're going to tell the end of the story. Right. And that I, is a pretty cool part. Like, people knew 1 through 8 because that those were the media screeners that were sent out. And people who write stuff in advance or, or do shows right after, not me, but people who do shows right after and, and, and are writing things and, and recording things off of the show sometimes get advanced copies so that they can have some lead time. Uh, you know, and, and get their shows and columns out there. Um, but nine and ten weren't done in time to give out as media screeners, so they couldn't do that. So, like you said, nobody knows what's on nine and ten, whereas people knew it was on one through eight. And one more thing that we forgot to hit on in this episode: how great of an owner did Jerry Randstorf seem? like to play oh he seemed awesome you know what i mean like the best player ever in teams he said it himself the best player ever in team sport is retiring and he could not be happier he said he was happy for michael and he believed he was doing the right thing how many owners today would have that sentiment how many owners today would you look at and say, you know what, that looks genuine. I don't think you could count them on one hand. No, I don't think so either. And what I mean, I do think you could count them on one hand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I know no, I know exactly what you meant. Like I, I don't think that I don't think that people acted the same way. It's like a different um it's gonna sound strange. It's it's like a different time in sports ownership. You know, like it's it's just like a very. I, I think that there there are owners that just are kind of cut from a different cloth and a different time. And, and um, you know, given what is involved in owning a team now, I think that you're just in a much different place. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know that players and owners have that kind of relationship anymore. No, I think it's less direct. Probably, unless yeah. it's Mark Cuban. Unless you're a certain player and a certain owner, I think it's it's much less direct. Unless it's someone like Mark Cuban, who sits courtside every game, has intimate relationships with his players like Dirk and Luca, and you see them interacting all right, the time. Right, but, but, but even in that situation, is it everybody having that relationship with Mark Cuban, or is it just Dirk and Luca? I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. Neither do um, I. You know, it, is it everybody in Golden State having a relationship with with Joe Lacob and, no. and Peter Goober, or is it uh, Steph Curry and 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 Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson? Like, I don't know. Right, but what I meant by that was Mark Cuban seems like a genuine fan. He wears a Mavericks T-shirt and jeans to every game. Sure. He's cheering on the team like a madman. He's getting into it with the referees. Like he loves the team as a fan does not necessarily as an owner like this is making me money he gets his money elsewhere for him it truly seems like fandom He's hobby just a super thing. fan right also the whole david stern thing addressing michael retiring yeah 
That was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we had talked about that a little bit earlier in the week in in you know the series. I I'll buy into that conspiracy theory. Why not? Not the part where it got his dad killed, but the part where it was bad enough that Stern was like, "Eh, step aside, bud. We look, sorry, but just help us out. Do us, do us a solid." I don't know that capitalist. That ultimate capitalist argument really it I is good. I it understood is it. And why the look, hell David Stern, would David Stern look, do that? Well, because look, David Stern is still the same person who who to his death said, "No, we didn't fix the lottery for for the Knicks." So I don't know. I don't know. I say on a good conspiracy theory note, we wrap it up. Okay, that's uh, that's a good place to end for tonight. Uh, don't forget, hit the subscribe button, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Radio.com, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow me on Twitter, at SethGoldberg17, or like my Facebook, Seth Goldberg Sports. Uh, we'll have plenty more for you coming up on a show to be named later. We'll talk to you again very soon. <laughs>